0: Support for AHLA comes from Axon, which brings unmatched depth and the skills needed to address healthcare collaboration and competition. They are one of the best known antitrust firms in the world, with more than 60 full time competition lawyers. They represent companies across the healthcare universe and help clients avoid antitrust landmines, complete mission critical deals, and protect their interests in litigation and investigations. For more information, visit axon.com.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Leslie Overton. I'm a partner at Axon in the DC office, and it is such a pleasure to be speaking to you all uh, on this podcast where we're addressing uh, developments uh, since the White House executive order, although we will be addressing topics beyond that. I have been doing antitrust for a long time, and I've been fortunate to have experience with healthcare during that time, including at the Department of Justice, where during the Obama administration, uh, I had responsibility for. Um, Healthcare antitrust policy. And uh, I am going to give a super brief introduction of our two wonderful speakers, and then they are going to expand on those introductions. Uh, the first is Peter Muchetti, who is a partner in Clifford Chance's DC office. And I had the wonderful pleasure of working with him on healthcare matters while I was at DOJ. And then the second, who you'll hear from after you hear from Peter, is Dr. Chatai Koch, who is a managing director at Secretariat Economics in the Washington, D.C. office. So I'll first turn to Peter to give a little bit more information about himself.
2: Thank you, Leslie. It is great to be on this podcast with you and Chatai, Tai. Uh, and uh, it's great to think about the the many, many wonderful years that you and I worked together in the antitrust division of the Justice Department. That's where I spent the vast majority of my career, about 19 years, and, and the, most of that time in the healthcare and consumer product section, which I led for about seven and a half years before uh, coming to Clifford Chance. But I'm excited to talk about uh, the various uh, healthcare topics that we're going to uh, work through on today's uh, podcast, there there is just so much going on at the antitrust agencies and in the healthcare industry, um, in particular. So I look forward to our conversation.
1: Great, Doctor Coach. Uh,
0: thank you, Leslie. It's it's great to be on this podcast with you and Peter. Um, I have been uh, working on uh, uh, healthcare issues in the last 15, 20 years, since basically uh, my dissertation at that graduate school. Um, at one point, I was also at the Federal Trade Commission as a visiting scholar for two years uh, working on uh, healthcare issues. In terms of particular cases, um, I have analyzed um, uh, allegations of monopolization and exclusionary conduct in uh in health insurance and in pharmaceuticals. I have worked on mergers in hospital services, physician services and pharmaceuticals cases. Uh, And also lately I have been working on um, statistical sampling and damages issues in rate disputes between uh, providers and, and insurance companies.
1: Excellent. Well, again, it's so wonderful to have both of you here. And um, I'm looking forward to a robust discussion. So we're going to start with talking about um, Biden's all of government and holistic approaches to antitrust. And so I will begin with Chatai and um, ask, how is Biden's all of government policy approach being implemented? and are there any recent developments in antitrust enforcement that you think embody this policy?
0: Yeah, I think there are um, uh, several developments in antitrust enforcement uh, recently that embody this this policy. Um, The the first uh, development that I've seen is that the Federal Trade Commission announced uh, a retrospective study um, on physician service acquisitions um, and um, uh, they, they they basically requested information um, from several insurance companies to analyze the impact of physician consolidations. Um, these could be these could be physician practice group mergers or hospital acquisitions of physician practices. And I find this uh, important, uh, especially in the area of uh, the analysis of quality competition for physician services. While we know a great deal about um, quality competition in hospital services, um, especially, you know, there's a lot of uh, academic writings, uh, both on the conceptual side and on the empirical side on the issue of uh, quality competition in hospital services. We don't know much about the link between physician competition and quality. There is not much academic work. So I think uh, this study might be important uh, to further our knowledge uh, on that issue. Uh, Another area uh, that I've seen is uh, in a relatively uh, short amount of time, in a couple of years, uh, we have witnessed four hospital merger challenges. Uh, The proposed transaction between CARE New England and Lifespan, uh, the proposed merger between Hackensack and um, Englewood, and then the Jefferson uh, Health-Einstein transaction. Even though the FTC declined to pursue further its challenge, uh, when a federal judge refused to enjoin this transaction uh, and finally uh, the Methodist uh, St Francis transaction so all of these four hospital merger challenges I think um, are also to, can, can 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 be in this recent development in antitrust enforcement bucket. And finally uh, the DOJ pursued uh, some uh, criminal cases against individuals for alleged wage fixing agreements and uh, this might be, um, uh, in the area that uh, that the uh, labor antitrust issues, I think, will be important going forward uh, for the agencies.
1: Well, thank you very much. We're going to talk more um, shortly about uh, those labor issues, because those have definitely been a big focus of uh of antitrust um, uh, within healthcare and beyond healthcare. Um, But next I want to go to Peter and just ask, um, with new perspectives at the DOJ, the FTC, and at many state AG's offices, what recommendations should we give clients when navigating merger reviews and antitrust investigations in the healthcare sector?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, how how has the the world shifted and uh how should uh healthcare companies react to that? Well, let me let me give three high-level takeaways that I think in-house counsel or outside counsel um, should keep in mind when advising their clients is first understand that the, the the climate at the agencies is much more aggressive. Both the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department's Antitrust Division are very proud about the fact that they are trying to be uh, as aggressive as they can uh, with um, uh, challenging mergers that they see as anti-competitive or business practices that they see uh, as harming uh, consumers, and that many of the state attorney general's offices, who of course are also responsible for enforcing uh, state antitrust laws, uh, are also uh, very aggressive. And they're, we, we're seeing a uh, uh, strong cooperation between the federal and the state antitrust agencies. The second high-level takeaway is that uh, when interacting with the antitrust agencies, focus on how your transaction or your business practice helps consumers and your community. The, The arguments to make in front of the agencies can be broader now. It's not just about uh, consumers. Uh, the agencies are concerned with um, more than some of the traditional consumer welfare theories uh, of harm, and I think that gives the opportunity to say, um, uh, to talk about how uh, mergers are uh, helpful not only in um, the product markets, that the antitrust division or the Federal Trade Commission are looking at, but more generally how the uh, transaction or business practice are helping consumers and the larger community. And finally, uh, my uh, main takeaway is to just be prepared. Uh, Do your antitrust analysis upfront, figure out early what your affirmative and defensive uh, stories are, uh, because there is a much greater risk at the agency's investigations are going to last longer and result in uh, potential challenges. So knowing what your best arguments are up front um, is very important. But uh, I do want to say it's not all bad news. Uh, There are healthcare transactions that are going through and there are healthcare investigations that are being closed. Um, uh, So so definitely uh, uh, companies should continue to uh, pursue those transactions that they feel will benefit um, their uh, the communities that they serve. And then finally, maybe in, in kind of in, uh, the the flip side of the fact that the agencies are being more aggressive is that if you do find yourself in a situation where you want to complain about anti-competitive conduct, uh, you may have um, uh, agencies that are more interested and willing to listen to those concerns. Uh you you will have uh, probably a more fertile ground uh, uh, for uh, sowing uh, those concerns with the antitrust agencies.
1: I think mean, those are all um, great takeaways, Peter. And um, you know that the idea that the agencies are definitely more open to newer theories, um, newer theories of harm, but also as you said, um, perhaps might be more open to. Um, Uh, newer uh, pro-competitive rationales and the like. But uh, I think just remembering that this is, um, there've been a number of changes and that just because um, a particular transaction may have been viewed in one way um, in prior years does not mean that's how it will be viewed uh, today. So I I like your point a lot about being prepared. all right, so we're gonna move on to labor and monopsony, um, which um, uh, Chatai had um, previewed for us. And so Peter, I'll start, I'll start with you. Um, the antitrust division survived motions to dismiss in Jindal and Davida, but lost both back-to-back at trial. What do you think that the future holds for the division's approach to criminal labor market antitrust investigations?
2: Well, this, this is a really great question because it has been a huge area of focus for the antitrust division and uh, many state attorney generals as well. Um, uh, And, uh, even though the Justice Department had two very high profile trial losses in labor cases, they have uh, indicated that they will very much uh, continue to uh, prosecute wage fixing and uh, no poach investigations. And I thought I might just talk a little bit about uh, the Jindal and the DeVita case that you mentioned, because uh, just like you said, both cases survived a motion to dismiss and then ultimately the justice department lost a trial in the in the Jindal case uh which like the Devita case is a healthcare case um, that was a a wage-fixing case where the allegation was you had competitors agreeing on how much they would pay uh, people that they were hiring. So that's the the wage-fixing part of it. And then in DeVita, it was a different kind, uh, although a similar kind of labor market agreement. That's a non-solicitation agreement. Uh, I won't uh, try to hire your employees if you don't try to hire uh, my employees. And the, with the motions to dismiss, the Justice Department saw this as, as a very important victory uh, for them just to establish the fact that these kind of allegations could be prosecuted criminally, that that was illegally permissible. In the Jindal case, the court rejected the defendant's constitutional arguments that they hadn't received fair notice, saying that, yes, they had. There was decades of precedent saying that this kind of uh, wage-fixing agreement could violate the Sherman's Act per se rule. And then, very similarly, in the DeVita case, uh, the court uh, rejected the idea that the defendants hadn't received fair notice, um, uh, but did add uh, that DOJ would have to show uh, not only that the defendants entered into a non-solicitation agreement, but also that the defendants intended to allocate a market. Um, So move forward. The government tried both of these cases. uh, At the same time, Uh, they almost uh, at the same time juries came back with uh, two not guilty verdicts. Uh, But uh, Jonathan Kander, who leads the antitrust division, uh, indicated that uh, the division is uh, clearly going to continue to bring this kind of case, describing these labor market cases as extremely important programmatic cases. Um, Also, the, the head of um, the uh, criminal program uh, at the antitrust division, uh, Richard Powers made a very similar statement saying that labor competition enforcement goes straight to the heart of the antitrust divisions economic justice mission. And indeed we see other labor market cases that are working their way through the courts. And I'll just mention one, which is the Manahi case, which involves uh, Employers at home healthcare agencies, and that matter is scheduled to begin trial in September of this year. So we will see if the division can get a trial win in that case. And then, maybe one last case to mention um, is that um, the uh, division has um, uh, filed uh, papers in um, the He case, uh, which is in Nevada, indicating that the parties have uh, reached a preliminary resolution uh, for um, this alleged labor market violation. And if that happens, that will be the first DOJ conviction for a labor market case.
1: Thank you very much, Peter, for... um Um, that deeper dive into these issues. I'll just note um, a practical application for our listeners, and that is just a reminder to take a look at your compliance policies and make sure that they are up to date and that they encompass uh, labor um, issues. So because that is something that some companies have uh have run into that they just haven't updated their policies and um sometimes their uh their people are not as aware of the sensitivities around these issues so um i'm next going to go back to shatai um in to a case that, or matter he mentioned earlier, the Lifespan Care New England transaction. So, So Chair Kahn and Commissioner Slaughter announced that they would have supported an allegation that the effect of the Lifespan Care New England transaction may have been to substantially lessen competition in an unspecified labor market. Republican commissioners Phillips and Wilson disagreed with their assessment given the evidence, but noted that monopsony claims can have relevance in merger review. Now with the appointment of Democratic commissioner Bedoya, how do you predict labor considerations might be incorporated into hospital merger review?
0: Yeah, so, Hospital mergers that significantly reduce the number of hospitals competing locally for uh, labor may depress uh, wage growth. Uh, so, so the, the question is, uh, should merger review consider whether merging firms gain labor market power uh, that enable them to decrease uh, employees' wages? Uh, I think this is at least uh, for for an economist. This is a really difficult um, empirical question uh, to 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 analyze because w- what we are really trying to answer is the merger induced changes in employer concentration. So this is this is similar to, for example, analyzing uh, merger induced efficiencies, which is which is another difficult topic. Uh, so it is difficult to to analyze. Uh, merger-induced changes in employer concentration um, because uh, it is important to examine whether the actual mergers, as opposed to uh, other sources of variation in employer concentration, have contributed to slower wage growth. So uh, as an economist, I would, I would like to then compare wage growth in labor markets that experience a concentration-increasing merger To wage growth uh, in otherwise identical labor markets without any merger activity. So, that's the the first thing an an empirical analysis uh, should need to um, uh, differentiate before responding, before answering this merger induced changes in employer concentration. Another, I think, important aspect is uh, that mergers may also affect wages through other mechanisms, such as managerial changes designed to reduce labor costs. So before concluding that that there's a merger-induced change in employer concentration, we need to rule out these these, uh, other effects as well. So as a result, uh, I think it becomes difficult to, uh, uh, it is not impossible obviously, but it it becomes difficult and requires some good data uh, to analyze uh, merger-induced changes in employer concentration. And so far there is very limited academic and empirical evidence on this issue. There are a couple of very good papers uh, which suggest that uh, such effects, these merger-induced changes in employer concentration, uh, they typically apply in relatively narrow circumstances. So wage growth slows only following mergers that led to substantial increase in employer concentration and only for workers uh, whose skills are less transferable uh, outside of the industry. So uh, I think j- just to conclude, it's, it's definitely an interesting area and it's an area that uh, I think we need to focus in merger reviews, uh, but we might need good quality data uh, and we might need to um, uh, analyze these data really uh, properly to conclude whether uh, there is a merger-induced change in employer concentration.
1: Well, thank you, Chatai. And so um, you just described um, a-, a lot of complexity, Uh, in a potential analysis here, which I think leads into the next question that I have for Peter. Um, Still sticking with the lifespan transaction, um, commissioners Phillips and Wilson noted that adding a labor theory would add complexity to the case without changing the relief that the commission could obtain or improving the commission's odds of blocking the transaction. And so just, is it possible, Peter, To incorporate labor theories into the antitrust framework without inadvertently hindering enforcement efforts?
2: It's a a very good question. And I think it um, depends on the case. And I think there are balancing considerations. You know, as Commissioner Phillips and Wilson noted, when you add an upstream labor market case, you are taking on uh, as as the plaintiff an additional set of burdens. Now you've got to establish a market, you've got to establish effects in that uh, in that market, um, and uh, that's going to make the trial more complex. It's going to make the trial longer. Um, and what do you what do you get for that? Um, uh, in in their view, you don't get much for it because by pleading harm in a downstream market, which is probably usually gonna be general acute care services, uh, if the plaintiffs win, Uh, that there's harm in uh, downstream healthcare services market. They already get to block the transaction. You can't block the transaction more than once. So why bother to have an additional theory of harm? I think there are reasons why a government plaintiff may want to do that. Uh, One of them is it does give them an alternative uh, theory of harm to go after, um, which uh, may be potentially an independent ground on which to block the transaction. Um, it can also be that there's an additional uh, group that uh, the, the plaintiffs are showing that they're defending. Uh, it could be nurses, for example, uh, and that can be um, a very good uh, 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 A set of individuals to defend a market to show that uh, you care about this very important group um, of healthcare workers. Um, And then also it does increase the size of the harm uh, that uh, the transaction potentially uh, hurts. Uh, And so if you're balancing efficiencies, this Puts a little more potentially on the side of the scale, showing that there's antitrust harm. And, you know, most recently, I think we've been thinking about uh, labor market cases in the context of hospital mergers, but it does come up in other uh, ways as well. Right now, for example, um, the labor market uh, issue is the only uh, issue in the Justice Department's case seeking to block. The merger of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Not a healthcare case, but it is a case where the government has alleged that the merger is going to decrease the amount of uh, money and services that authors are, are able to negotiate from uh, the big uh, book publishing companies. And there's no downstream case. So you can have uh, a merger case that's focused solely on labor market issues. And then going back to the healthcare space, we have seen over the years a number of uh, labor market allegations concerning health insurance mergers, uh, starting with the Aetna Prudential uh, merger about uh, 30 years ago, but also in United Pacific Care. There was a standalone uh, theory in Boulder, Colorado that uh, that transaction would have decreased uh, compensation to physicians, Uh, and then more recently, there were uh, labor market concerns in the Blue Cross of Michigan PHP merger, and then the Anthem Signa merger. Uh, concerning the effect that the merger of those uh, insurance companies would have on payments to hospitals uh, so so definitely there's a variety of ways that we can see uh, uh, labor theories getting incorporated into uh, merger enforcement and i think it i think it does come down a little bit to the facts of each specific case whether the plaintiffs will find that um, that's the main theory they want to pursue or it's an additional theory they want to pursue and that it's worth the the complexity of taking that on.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, Peter. We're just going to touch very quickly on the United Change uh, Transaction, um, which the division challenged. Uh, and in opening arguments, uh, the division said that United would gain access to, quote, vast amounts of data, in quote, on how rival insurers do business if the deal goes through. So we just wanted um, from Peter to just hear at a high level quickly what the issues are in the case, why the division wants to block the merger, and if there are lessons we should take away.
2: Sure. So, this is a, a matter that is being tried uh, right now as we uh, are recording this podcast. Um, and uh, United Healthcare, of course, a large health insurance company that also has its Optum Arm, uh, which handles a lot of uh, data related services, uh, would like to buy uh, Change uh, Health. And, uh, uh, and there are two issues in this matter one's horizontal and one is vertical on the horizontal side, um, the transaction without a divestiture would combine claims extend Mm -hmm. and United's claims edit system, which are uh, two first pass claims editing solution, solutions that uh, are used to to process um, uh, medical claims. Um, uh, But United is divesting this business to a private equity company called TPG. So the main question at trial is whether that divestiture includes all the assets that are needed to successfully run the business and whether the buyer uh, will have the incentive and the ability to successfully run with that business. So that's, that's what we're keeping our eyes on there uh, concerning the horizontal claim. On the vertical side, uh, it's, it's a much different story. Uh, Change operates one of the nation's largest electronic data interchange clearinghouses, which which is how healthcare providers and insurance companies uh, transmit the data that they use to process claims. And the government's allegation is that United will have access to this data, which will give harm in two potential ways. One is United may Uh, no longer make this service available to competing insurance companies, or at least not to the same extent that it makes it available to United itself. Um, And the other concern that the government has is that um, uh, United will be able to look at the uh, data from other uh, health insurance rivals Uh, and use that in a way that will discourage uh, health insurance rivals from innovating uh, or to otherwise uh, harm uh, competition. United's response to that is uh, multifold. Uh, They say, on the one hand, um, uh, United argues that it it won't use that information for any improper purposes, that its contracts with uh, uh, payers prevent them from doing that, uh, that it has an economic incentive to make sure that it's opt business truly appeals to many different uh, payers um, uh, and uh, that in any event, United already has access to a tremendous amount of data. And so there, so the, the marginal data, the, the incremental data that United will get access to because of this merger, uh, even if it were to use it in the way that the government alleges, uh, is not something that would lead to the harms that the government is suggesting will happen. So, uh, that matter is before judge Nichols, uh, in the district of Columbia, uh, and, uh, Oral uh, uh, closing arguments are scheduled in early September, so we might expect a decision sometime in the late September to November uh, timeframe on that uh, very large uh, health insurance data merger.
1: Great. Thank you. All right. Next, we're going to turn to the revisions that are underway with respect to the merger guidelines. And I'm going to start with um, and just ask, uh, what changes do you anticipate with respect to the economic underpinnings of the guidelines? And might there be less emphasis on economics or a more progressive approach?
0: Um, I I anticipate um, more emphasis actually on on economics given um, uh, what what, what I've read so far uh, in terms of um, uh, the uh, potential changes in the guidelines. Uh, for example, uh, we might uh, see more guidance on uh, how to analyze a merger's impact on labor markets in the new gu- guidelines. Uh, and as we just talked about, uh, that requires some uh, some economic analysis uh, to 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 answer the to answer that important question. Uh, the second area uh, we have we have been seeing some discussions on the welfare standard. Uh, to analyze the mergers, whether we should um, continue to use the consumer welfare standard versus a, a different welfare standard standard uh, incorporating uh, a broader uh, group of, uh, uh, of uh, stakeholders. And um, that, I think, uh, will uh, definitely include uh, some, some more economics. Um, also, uh, I think agencies uh, are seeking input on how to address the issue of buyer power in more detail. Um, And uh, that, uh, in my opinion, is also important uh, in the market definition for hospital mergers and might require uh, some additional economic thinking. Um, uh, There is uh, also some discussion on how to account uh, for key areas of the modern economy, uh, like digital markets. Uh, And uh, here in this industry, multi-sided markets uh, are important and That's uh, a branch of economics where uh, we have seen a lot of literature uh, lately. Um, uh, Also, uh, I think the guidelines are also seeking uh, guidance on what types of evidence uh, should be considered in evaluating non price effects, such as quality or uh, access to healthcare. Uh, And I think uh, this is another area that um, uh, we might see more emphasis on economics. And finally, uh, we might see more guidance on dynamic com- competition, uh, meaning how to uh, analyze potential competition and innovation in certain industries, and and, and economics could also uh, contribute to that to that uh, uh, area as well.
1: Well, thank you, Chatai. Um, Peter, do you have uh, anything to add in terms of? The agency's uh, efforts to quote reflect modern market realities um, of our dynamic and multidimensional economy, and, and what they're they're trying to do here, and whether they can um, adjust the merger framework without overstepping the bounds of antitrust law.
2: Well, it's it's a very good question. When uh, many people read the government's uh, announcement that they were going to look to revise the merger guidelines and their request for information that asked uh, many questions uh, about how the guidelines might be changed. Uh, I think many people thought the the questions in this request for information did have uh, a strong tilt to them towards increased uh, antitrust enforcement. Uh, We don't yet have a sense as to just how aggressive the revisions to the merger guidelines are going to be. Um, uh, They did attract A a tremendous amount of comments Uh, about 5800 comments uh, were filed with the antitrust agencies, uh, commenting on how the guidelines should be changed and how they should not be changed. don't hold your breath because we're not likely to see revised guidelines this year. Uh, but we should we should get uh, a sense of what's uh, what the guidelines will look like sometime uh, next year. Um, there are a number of areas where changes seem especially likely: um, digital markets, for example, labor markets. We've discussed uh, another area of um, Increased focus for the agencies is the role of private equity companies. There's concern uh, that private equity, as opposed to other kinds of owners of a business, um, uh, harm uh, competition. Uh, that is a view that uh, Commissioner Christine Wilson uh, has attacked, saying that we shouldn't judge Uh, companies by who they are, uh, but rather by their actions. Uh, So we'll see what happens um, there. Uh, But um, certainly another sign that the agencies are looking to be more aggressive and therefore might um, be more aggressive with the revisions to the vertical merger guidelines is the fact that uh, the FTC withdrew their support of the vertical merger guidelines that were adopted um, really just a a couple of years ago, uh, indicating that they withdrew the guidelines because they thought they were um, too friendly towards um, accepting um, uh, uh, benefits to uh, vertical mergers. So uh, this is certainly a space to, to keep our eye on.
1: And I know one thing that I'm really going to be looking out for is um, what courts do when we have new merger guidelines, because I think that, uh, you know, that was some of the power of um, the 2010 um, revised uh, horizontal merger guidelines that they were well received by courts. And so, Peter, do you have any thoughts on um, how much it matters in terms of uh, what the courts say?
2: I, I agree because, it, like you, like you say, you can one can point to specific provisions of the current horizontal merger guidelines that courts have expressly adopted, and and that is likely because what's in the horizontal merger guidelines today does reflect the, a consensus among antitrust practitioners and economists and other people that are working in the field. But to the extent that these new guidelines that the FTC and DOJ are working up start to push the bounds of uh, what uh, existing precedent and economic theory support, then it's more and more likely that the courts are going to say, well, the antitrust agency's guidelines are just that. It's not law that the courts have to follow. And to the extent that the, the courts say, well, we expressly decline to follow A particular policy of the guidelines, I think it can have this overhang effect, where it's going to start to call the guidelines into question. So I think I think the agencies when they're when they're revising the guidelines, should ask themselves: How are courts likely to react to this? Do you want to be aggressive in one area if it's going to call into question the validity of the guidelines as a whole?
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, All right, I'm going to turn back to uh, Chatai and um, ask about um, some more about hospital consolidation. So so Chatai, we saw cross-market effects theories come into play in two recent hospital mergers, Beaumont Spectrum Health in Michigan and Cedars-Sinai Huntington in California. What concerns did the agencies have about those deals And why do you think um, they were approved without legal challenge? Or they weren't challenged, I should say. Um, Do you think we will see more cross-market effects theory from the FTC during this administration?
0: So let me uh, talk about this uh, uh, in the context of the uh, Cedar sinai Huntington merger. Uh, So in that merger, uh, while uh, the um, federal regulators Uh, did not issue a second request. The California Attorney General uh, imposed um, several conditions such as price caps, um, separate negotiation teams, and mandatory arbitration uh, when negotiations with with payers fail. And um, the AG uh, imposed these conditions based on a cross-market analysis, uh, which found that uh, the parties are not head-to-head com- competitors in the same geographic market, but that they have market power in their uh, respective markets. And the AG's economic analysis uh, also relied on uh, certain plus factors to determine um, that cross-market competitive harm was likely. Uh, these included you know, payer concerns and the presence of uh, large employer customers uh, whose members desire the inclusion of both parties in their provider networks. Um, so there is also, uh, I think, some good economic literature um, on cross-market mergers uh, that recognize that for competitively harmful cross-market effects to arise, um, at a minimum, you know, these parties uh, need to be in separate markets, they need to possess market power, and finally, they need to satisfy what we call the uh, concavity condition. And this condition basically a very intuitive condition and it requires uh, that the negotiating health plan to suffer a larger decline in its network quality when both hospitals are left out of the network simultaneously, um, than the sum of the quality reductions with each hospital excluded individually. So when I combine the, the, the facts of the case with this economic literature, uh, you know, t- typically agencies don't tell us uh, if they don't go for a second request uh, or if they don't uh, legally challenge a case, uh, we don't typically know why um, uh, they didn't do that. But based on the facts and this economic condition, um, uh, I could say uh, that maybe one of the following uh, three factors uh, might, um, might have involved uh, in, in the agency's decision. Uh, It could be that um, neither of the merging parties really possessed sufficient market power in their uh, geographic markets. Um, Or it could be that the parties uh, provide largely non-overlapping products and are complementary to one another's products, in which case uh, the concavity condition does not uh, uh, follow. And finally, it is possible that there might be some, um, uh, the, the common customers, can readily protect themselves um, against the cross-market price increases by purchasing uh, single uh, market provider networks. For example, uh, by slicing their accounts across multiple insurers with distinct networks in each geographic market. Um, so, in, in light of the in light of the you know uh, recent economic um, uh, literature, I can just uh, I can I can say that one of these uh, maybe three factors. Was evident in the case, which led the uh, uh, FTC uh, and 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 the Attorney General um, uh, of California not to take any legal action.
1: Thank you, Chatai, and I think this your answer to this question is just an important reminder for all of our listeners that um, state AGs, um, the states are sovereign, and so uh, while they often Coordinate very closely uh, with enforcers at DOJ or the FTC. Uh, they certainly have the ability to um, to go a different way um, based on. Uh, what they believe is in the interests of uh, their constituents. And so, um, and state AGs tend to often be very interested and focused on healthcare competition issues. So just important to keep in mind that it's not just the FTC or just the DOJ, but um, there are a number of, um, of uh, enforcers at play. So who may be interested in uh, a transaction. Um, so now in our remaining time, we're going to turn back to the consumer welfare standard debate, which um, which we touched on um, briefly before. Um, and I'm going to start with uh, Cha time and um, just say the Biden administration uh, has amplified voices that are advocating for a move away from the consumer welfare standard uh, and expanding its scope beyond prices out quality and innovation um, to address broader public interests. And so I wanted to just hear more uh, from you, Chatai, about the alternatives being proposed and what is the total welfare standard, the public welfare standard, just get more from you on that.
0: Sure. So um, the the historical focus um, uh, uh, is, is the consumer welfare standard. Uh, where the mergers are evaluated um, based on their effect on consumers. And, and the questions that we typically ask are, uh, you know, as a result of the merger, will prices increase? Uh, will quality decrease? Will access to services be compromised? Uh, will innovation be compromised? Um, so basically, you know cons- consumer welfare measures the welfare that consumers get from low prices. low prices, high quality and good access. And it is largest uh, when, when markets uh, are competitive uh, because competitive, market, competitive uh, markets result in uh, low prices uh, and, and better quality. Uh, but lately, there, was, there were some critiques of this, of this standard. Uh, and in particular, the main critique was uh, that there is insufficient focus uh, on other stakeholders and, and other policy objectives other than the consumer. And uh, in, in light of this uh, public interest standard, um, people started thinking about um, the total welfare uh, standard where uh, uh, the focus or, or the mergers are evaluated based on their effect on multiple parties, uh, depending on the, on, the, on the transaction at issue. For example, consumers, uh, workers, competitors, small businesses, uh, or, or the merger could even inc- incorporate some policy objectives, uh, such as some certain environmental objectives. Um, and all of these uh, essentially needs to be uh, considered when evaluating uh, a merger. Uh, the, the main point here from, from an, at least an economist's perspective is, Uh, That, you know, as economists, we can assemble evidence uh, in terms of how the merger could impact consumers or workers or any other stakeholders in the merger. But when we calculate the total welfare, we need to basically um, uh, find a way to assign weights to each of these stakeholders. And that's something I think the policymakers uh, uh, needs to uh, think about. Uh, so um, what I think about this is that if if we move from the consumer welfare standard to to another standard which might uh, incorporate uh, more of the stakeholders in a transaction, uh, the key issue will be how to how to assign weights uh, to the to the evidence of the merger on each of those stakeholders.
1: gotcha. Thank you very much um, for that that background. Um, So Peter, I think this is going to be our last question. Is it possible for courts to consider wider ranging consumer harm? So labor, uh, ESG, which um, uh, environmental, social, and governance, um, racial impact, wealth inequality, while maintaining practicability and objectivity?
2: Well, you know, I think in some sense, courts and the antitrust agencies already do. Um, and and he, let me give two examples. Uh, the first is with um, hospital mergers. Uh, we have often seen the case that uh, one of the merging uh, hospitals um, is a safety net hospital uh, and uh, serves uh, a high percentage of the people that it serves uh, are um, uh, uh uh, lower income, um, and in in that case, you you certainly see both sides talking about the importance of the transaction to help that uh, community. Now, I'll I'll say both sides try to use the the importance of uh, better serving. Uh, this vulnerable community uh, to the advantage in their case, uh, you would typically see the government arguing that uh, because of this special concern about serving uh, lower income individuals, um, you especially need to have competition because that's what motivates the hospitals to provide better services. But defendant's response to that is typically that the merger will produce greater efficiency and therefore, actually, uh, the better way to serve uh, the, the lower income community, the vulnerable community, is to allow the merger to go through because you'll have these efficiencies. So I, and so those arguments go to the court and then the court uh, takes those uh, arguments uh, as, as part of its uh, opinion. And just one other example of where you see this uh, kind of argument uh, playing out uh, would be with um, uh, insurance populations. So for example, in the Edna Humana case, that concerned Medicare Advantage, which is a health insurance uh, plan that replaces original Medicare. So this is uh, uh, mostly for uh, the population that's age 65 and over. Uh, And there, uh, you certainly saw the argument talk about the importance of Medicare Advantage to serving the senior community and the court take up that argument of, hey, we've got to get the analysis right uh, in this transaction because uh, these are uh, communities uh, where protecting them um, has uh, uh, more value than just the dollars. Uh, you know, these are vital services that go to, uh, uh, to to healthcare services and the quality of life itself, and therefore, um, uh, the courts uh, should really focus in on, on how the transaction is going to affect uh, certain communities.
1: All right. I want to thank um, our wonderful panelists. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Chatai. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed uh, today's podcast.
2: Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Chatai.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode,